This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. You're listening to a Joycast from GLBTIQ community radio station Joy 94.9. Across Australia, on the Community Radio Network, to over 70 community radio stations around the nation. This is Word for Word, coming to you from Australia's first gay and lesbian radio station, Melbourne's Joy Kilda Road and I am standing at the front of the National Gallery of Victoria. They've currently got a massive contemporary exhibition on and one of the artists featured in that is one of Australia's finest contemporary painters and drawers. His name is Brent Harris. Brent, welcome to Word for Word. Hi. As we look at the iconic water wall here at National Gallery of Victoria, to the left is a two-storey replica of one of your prints. It's quite all-consuming. It's a painting, actually, and oh, it, painting. It, it is in the exhibition, so it's about a third of that size in the exhibition. Yeah. So it's still big. It's big. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take us uh, into the gallery and let's have a look at some of your pieces. We've arrived at level three at the National Gallery of Victoria, and it's the Robert Rayner Gallery. Brent Harris is my special guest, and he's uh, agreed to give us a guided tour of his contemporary works that are on display here. Brent, uh, there is quite a lot of pieces here, but this is really just a sample of what you do. Um, there are about 80 works here. It is in the prints and drawings galleries, but we've, we've included you know, maybe half a dozen paintings most of which the gallery own. So most of the work in the exhibition it belongs to the NGV and it's either by purchase or by donation. Um, different collectors have given works. And you do have a number of patrons that have been very generous in gifting work to the gallery, don't you? Uh, should I name them? <laughs> uh, probably best not to, to name them, but, but it's, it's an important part of what happens very. to get pieces on the wall. Yes, yes. Uh, the best collectors are those that buy your work in depth as some of the collectors that have gifted my works here and then the better collectors are the ones that will then gift works onto um, museums which is the best result for an artist you know and it's certainly happened for me in regards to the NGV and other institutions around the country and it's very very valuable. Now you were born in New Zealand your life growing up was a troubled one I believe. Oh, it's, sort of, it, it's so complicated it's sort of it's sort of a complicated family story but it wasn't an unhappy, really, it was not an unhappy child. I mean, we had to manage our father, basically, um, but it wasn't an unhappy childhood. You know, like, there's trauma, but it was still not unhappy. You know, kids 
do the best they can. You know, and kids like, you know. have an amazing ability to deal with that sort yeah. of drama, don't they? Yeah. So probably as I've grown older, I've realised the significance of damaging events. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's the thing that we do when we get older. You know, and I know from friends that a lot of their adult traumas are based in their childhood, and you know, and they don't seem to have quite as much significance in their childhood, but they do magnify as you grow older you know but i think that's because as a child you don't know any different and you just deal yeah, with it that's yeah. exactly that, yeah. that would be exactly it you know not that i'm troubled <laughs> you've had <laughs> enough therapy through your work I, look, to no, do. no 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 i've had plenty of therapy as well i love ther- <laughs> everybody should have a therapist you know? <laughs> now let's start with some of your earliest pieces which uh, have just inside uh, as you walk in the door here titled untitled we've got two pieces um very small pieces um, these are drawing pastel drawings from 1987, and I, I think they're very interesting in, inclusions here. Um, not that they're great works, but it's just very interesting. They're hanging beside the three most recent works, which are about four weeks old, but um, they were very fresh to, to make it into this exhibition. So these three monotypes from the last two months, and these works from the last from 25 years ago, and they're both surprisingly formed in a similar fashion. With these early works, I was making marks and developing a landscape sort of space that developed up out of the mark making. Yeah. So they're, they're kind of restricted in their iconography. And then if you move forward 25 years to the most recent work where the iconography is a lot more sophisticated and just a lot more, uh, a lot richer in referencing art history. Take us through these recent pieces because uh, I, of all of the stuff, uh, these are some of my, my favourites. They're kind of uh, twisted and quirky they're very easy to to sort of form what is going on in the pictures I mean they're pictures of of men and and people but um, they're a little bit spooky Uh, (laughs) (laughs) it's a series called The Fall they're monotypes I was in New York earlier um, late last year to see the de Kooning retrospective at MoMA and went up to Boston to see this big Dagar exhibition that I think is at the Dorsey currently but there were um quite a large number of his monotypes and its particular technique you only get the one image pretty much you can get a very faint impression but you generally um, only get the one it's not a reproductive method so you roll this plate up with black ink and then you smudge back with a cloth or a rag of some sort so the image appears out of where you've smudged this inked up surface you can reapply ink and you know you can smudge ink back in with your fingers and however you like but generally it's a reductive process and once you've created that single plate yeah. laid down i guess your your paper or your medium over the top yeah. that's it is it yeah the, the plate goes down onto the uh, bed of the press and then you place a wet piece of paper on top of that and then it goes through the press and it lifts the ink up off the plate and it's a one-off you can then take a second impression but it's very faint and dagar did this and would then work back into the second impression with pastels and make the most beautiful you know of his ballet wow. um series yeah, yeah. and um um, nude figure series. So, but the iconography in here, it, it, the series is titled The Fall. I had a studio in Rome at the end of 2009 uh, for three months, and the idea was to go there and make a new series of the Stations of the Cross. We'll get to that series in a minute, but in this exhibition, there is um, the series that were done in 1989, the Stations of the Cross. And I thought I would try 20 years later to redo that series, but when I got to Rome, I could not. I had no idea that the Catholics owned Jesus. And I, not quite to the extent... You didn't that, know well, that? <laughs> <laughs> not quite to the extent, you know, and the, the business side of it, you know, like, but when you're in Rome, it kind of just 
smacks you in the face. I'd been to Rome before, but not in this concentrated yeah. way. Yeah. It really irritated me, and I couldn't hold on to, I couldn't hold on to the subject and work with it. I did wow. eventually work with it, with a series called The Ecstatic Moment, which was a lot more open to sort of you know the idea of levitation, where Christ is levitating, mm-hmm. you know, and he's held up in the air purely on the strength of his belief. And I kind of like this idea, you know, like not that we'll ever get to levitate. So, you know, <laughs> it depends who you ask. So, in relation to the fall, it's kind of it's a really it's a really about the absurdity of the human condition, you know, um, the fall of man, if you like. But it is basically about the absurdity of the human condition. In this first print here is the sort of figure that is the figure of an old man, but he has very soft edges. He's kind of it's almost feminizing, and I think. I mean, he's bearded. He's sitting he's on this hairy. platform. He looks. He's got a hairy face, but his body is feminising. And I think, curiously, as the male body ages, it does feminise. I don't think the female body masculinises. But good so point. I think he's he's approaching the end, if you like. He's st- sort of dissolving into this f- water. Behind him are figures, but I think he's really here by himself. And these figures that are appearing in the print are probably previous conversations or thoughts or you know memories or whatever. So. The second print is pretty much a night sort of sky filled with horrors, uh, the demons of a dream, I suppose. It's not that terrifying, but, you know. Oh, it's a little scary. But there's a number of key figures in the foreground. There's uh, the, the old man lying down, yeah. but there's also the, the head of almost a Christ-like or God-like yeah, it's a uh, figure. It's a God-like figure, isn't it? Yeah. There are about 35 of these prints now. I'm going to keep working until I have about 70. I'm going to then put them into groups of 14 so that the series can then sit with the Stations of the Cross. Most of the state museums own series of the stations and two institutions are already interested in a series of the 14 of these. So really, the the idea of the fall, there'll be 14, it's not connecting to the 14 stations, but the subject matter connects with the um, the stations. There is one image that I've seen uh, that was uh, sent to me in advance of this interview of a solo figure moving through a a blackened uh, sky and moving at like a speed and his body's almost falling away behind him. I love that figure. I don't think he's moving. I think he's stationary. I think the world's moving... It's, hap- him, right. it's, it's happening to him. He's, yeah, not, he's yeah. not doing anything. It's happening to him, you know, yeah. so they're sort of like... Blown away. Yeah, it's blasting his hair back and pushing it, and he's, holding, he's still remaining vertical in that print, yeah. Yeah, no, I love that one. Let's go and have a, a look at uh, Stations of the Cross. Tell us what's inspired this series, Stations of the Cross. Okay. Iconographically, I was working in these very messy pastels, very colourful, and I felt that it was, I don't know, maybe a bit soft cock or something, you know? I wanted to toughen up my... As a young artist, I thought I could... T- so I thought hard edge abstraction. Strengthen the imagery. Yes, you know, and I was looking at a lot of more difficult abstract artists like Ad Reinhard, Barnett Newman, and their work is still difficult, you know? Barnett Newman, Jewish artist, New York artist, um, did a very famous series called The Stations of the Cross, which are um, on permanent display in the National Gallery in Washington. His reduced um, aesthetic and just the reduced pictorial language he used impressed me enormously. So Barnett Newman's imagery, not imagery because there's no imagery in his work, but his um, abstract interpretation of this subject interested me and also Colin McCann the New Zealand artist who did many works titled um, not titled numbered up to this series of 14 and generally they refer to the stations of the cross his work 
is very religious. And there's two paintings hanging next door, actually, we could have a look at. They've just bought one um, of them. He uses a lot of religious text in his paintings. And yet I don't believe he was religious. Mm. And I think he... And you're not. No, I'm not religious either. So my engagement here, um, 1989, friends of mine were dying of AIDS. I was 33, the same age as Christ, <laughs> when he should die. Friends of mine were dying, and I'm thinking, of what is a narrative that is there in place already of this passage from life toward death? And this is certainly it, and this is the passage of a young man... Christ is 33, he's condemned to death in the first station, Christ before Pilate, and then the entombment, he's buried. So they're quite abstract, very reduced, but for me the iconography in these abstract works still relates very closely to the narrative of each print. You know, Christ before Pilate, there's a single figure standing in darkness. Christ takes the cross, there's sort of an off-centred cross. But my, my engagement with this, this story really is more um, psychological, than religious, as in Christ falls three times. So it's number three, number seven, and number nine. And in my prints, there are large paintings for these prints as well, um, for this series. There's this sort of foot shape that appears in each three of these prints. Each time he falls, his ego is reduced to some extent. Normally when people grow old, their egos are reduced by the frailty, but you know, you grow weaker, your ego becomes reduced simply by managing you know, a decaying body, if you like, mind decays, whatever. Um, But for a young man to to face a death sentence like this, how is he going to go to death without screaming you know, kicking and fighting? So each time he falls, his ego is reduced just a little bit you know, so I'm, this is my reading of this. You have a deeper interpretive understanding of the story for someone who's not a religious man. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I suppose I do. I mean, I have thought quite long and hard about it, and even at the time, I became very engaged with it. Um, the fifth station, um, Simon helps carry the cross. Um, there's a cross form here, and it's sort of su- supported by these. And so Simon helps. Someone helps someone carry their cross. So. And we all do that. We all carry the burden of each other's death. You know, we carry our lovers, the burden of our lovers' death, you know, our family's death. So it's all loaded into this rather <laughs> rather abstract stories. You've uh, travelled the world doing uh, much of your learning and your artistry, and uh, you spent uh, some time in Singapore. Um, I had a residency there at the Tyler Print Institute, um, which was set up by Ken Tyler. Um, he used to own Gemini Press in America. May, you know, a very significant press. He did all the paper pulp works with um, David Hockney, you know, the biggest splash series. Canberra owned um, a lot from that period. Anyway, all this machinery, this amazing machinery, is uh, Ken Tyler sold to Singapore into this workshop. So they are now able to make these large paper pulps. So I spent most of my five weeks there working on large paper pulp works. Um, one of, there is one here in the exhibition. And then at the same time you're working with this whole workshop. So there are six printers in another section of the workshop wanting to do something. So they kept, pre- they were really, they pressured me and pressured me. So I had to come up with this idea for, to activate these other printers. So I decided to work on this set of woodblock prints and Again, the subject matter is religious, but it's my engagement with it isn't really religious. And it deals. It, there's an image here of Buddha, Jesus, and Ganesha. And when you're in Singapore, you cannot avoid the um, incredible colour, you know, of the Hindu temples, and the, you know, just around the corner, you will come upon a, you know, a Buddhist temple, 
Um, I'm not sure that the Christian churches are so colourful, but they're present, you know. So, and then there are mosques. So all these religions are on this tiny island, all working together. You know, um, my comment really was a visual one. It is a very colourful um, kind of mashing together of these um, these different world religions, um, all in this one place. So very colourful, and these prints are very colourful, and you know, each dealing with a different deity, I suppose. And these are woodblock uh, prints? They're woodblock prints and they're in the jigsaw puzzle technique which I've used a couple of times before in other series, in a series um, of three prints from the Grotesquerie series and an a series called The Untimely. And that technique comes from Edvard Munch where you, you have a block of ply, you imprint your drawing on, on that and then you cut around sections of your drawing that you want to be in a particular colour. You undo the jigsaw puzzle. So it becomes Literally a jigsaw, jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. So the red area is rolled up or coloured red and then there might be a blue area and then you put the whole thing back together as a jigsaw puzzle, put your piece of paper over it and then put it through the press. It's a very... Um, Edvard Munch sort of devised this technique. To, it's, as a, it's a great one. As a simple way yeah. to make colourful coloured prints you know whereas generally if you want to make coloured prints each time you go to a different colour you need another plate and yes. the registration has to be dealt with as in these little woodblock prints here and then you you risk the, the colours not being exactly what you want when they're overlaid and all that sort of stuff yes. yeah and although this in 1999 I had a residency in Japan for three months to learn the Japanese woodblock technique which is ukiyo-e technique so it uses watercolour. Again, you, uh, maybe everybody's aware of the, um, the ukiyo-e print, the absolute masterpiece, you know, the, the fine degree in some of them are incredible. When you realise how the technique is, it's an easy technique to um, learn, just an extremely difficult technique to master, you know, so they can teach it to you, but you wouldn't, you know... Very few people get to that, that, that <laughs> yes, brilliance. Yes, you know, like Utamaru yeah. and, you know, and Kunyoshi and some of the great ones, you know, the astounding masterpieces in world art and in this technique. But that, that again, it's a water-based... Water there are seven prints in that technique here um, in the Grotesquerie series that I printed myself. But each time you want to go to a different colour, you have to go to a different block. So, again, it's about registration and it's a very time-consuming process. The Grotesquerie series um, has... One hell of a backstory. Would you like to share um, that with us? Oh, I suppose it. <laughs> I don't know if I'd call it one hell of a backstory. Um, well, it it's looks, certainly your interpretation of a very personal issue. Yes. Look, quite a bit of my work is generated from strong uh, personal emotion. So, but not all the work is generated in that in that way. You know, like the Stations of the Cross. The iconography is not generated from me as much as you know from that story. The Grotesquerie is a personal story. It's a family story, you know, about a slightly sort of fucked up family um, history. You know, difficult father. Your commentary in these pictures of your father um, is um, fairly damning. Well, he was a <laughs> he was a bastard, you know. Yeah. He was a, a child molestering, violent man. You know, um, I didn't cop all of his um, abuse. My sisters suffered more than I did, but I sort of which had happened with me and he was quite, you know, aggressive with all of us, I suppose. He is represented in this series through this masked sort of hooded figure and he, um, I put him through his paces. The series is... <laughs> you sure did. Well, in one, in one series, in one image here in one of the prints, there are large paintings that relate to all of this. There are 26 large paintings in this series. There are three series of prints which the NGV own, all three. There's this large painting here, one of the 26, that I think is about to be gifted by the collector of this work. 
to the gallery. So there are 26 large paintings. There are paintings that relate to all of the seven um, little Japanese woodblock prints here. I say Japanese, but just in the technique. Yeah. Um, one of them here, I've cut his throat, and he's bleeding the family, if you like. These two childlike images drop down in the red, and the mother is reaching up in the um, rather anguish up through the, the red. There's another image up here where I've kind of put a, pushed a dummy into his mouth. The mother is generally present as, as this yellow-haired, female, obviously female figure, her breast often appears. There's another image here where the, 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 the father figure is, to me, exhaling this sort of scrotum and breast-like form, quite fluid. And this is a form that recently was misinterpreted by a reviewer. Well, yeah, Robert Nelson reviewed it in The Age and referred to it as fellatio, but it's not about anybody sucking anybody off it's about, it's about blowing out sexuality it's, well it's about him blowing it's a, an image if, you, if, if, if he was to blow out a sort of a frosty air and his sexual desire was to be imaged in that bubble if you like this is my interpretation so it's neither male nor female it's scrotum like it's breast like you know um whatever this man's sexuality was you know mm. I, I don't know much about his his personal, his, um, what makes a person like that, I don't know. Mm. There's another image here of the mother figure alone, but she's not alone. He is still present in her hair. There's a mask forming in her hair, so the father figure is still present. Sort of ever-present in the back of her head, so to yes. speak. Yeah. There's another one here where he's not quite present, but he, there's this sort of silhouette, this, this line that suggests the shoulders, so he's present as this looming figure mm. in the background. There's another smaller work here where it's kind of like this profile, buttocks and back and head, of a figure entering, and I believe this to be myself, if you like. It could, there's a sort of a, where I had cut his throat in a previous image, it could be here I am penetrating, like it almost could be fucking him, if you like, in the head. You know, like it's, mm. it's that's probably, uh, that's probably over-interpretation, but in this print I'm entering into the side and sort of forming it up against him and then there's a following image that's not here where the figure is leaving, the same figure is leaving the, um, other, side the, of the, scene, the other side of the picture. Yeah. My guest is Brent Harris. Uh, his exhibition is on at the National Gallery of Victoria at the moment. It's on through to the uh, middle of August 2012. You're with Dean Beck on Word for Word across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Word for Word, delve into the extraordinary lives of everyday people. Word for Word, challenging, inspiring, engaging and entertaining. Broadcast live on Joy 94.9, Sundays from 11am and supported by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to Word for Word. Dean Beck with you and my special guest today, coming to you from the National Gallery of Victoria is Brent Harris, and we're going through some of his works. Brent, uh, we're standing in front of a series called Troubled. It's actually, well, that that one is titled Troubled, but it's from a larger series called Appalling Moment. Um, What's appalling about this? (laughs) (laughs) I had a studio in Paris for six months in 1993-4 through the Australia Council. When I was there, I was working on these quite abstract, um, pure sort of abstract images, just in drawings, and was so irritated by the the good taste in Paris, and I really just wanted to sort of muck things up. So I focused on an artist called Mike Kelly. He's an American artist. He just committed suicide, actually, late last year. Anyway, just the idea of mucking things up. So I was working on these things, and then in one of the drawings, this elephant shape appeared, this head of an elephant, which was 
totally ridiculous and it was ridiculous of me to allow this to remain in my work which had been reasonably seriously abstract and formal. So I identified this as the appalling moment, my appalling moment, um, and then continued to make these kind of slightly playful, weird sort of figurative paintings. And I think it was a very valuable time in the end for me in Paris because it did open my practice up just to let it become a bit kookier. <laughs> so this little series relates to that. Now, one of the things that is uh, very evident in much of your work is the eyes. Mm. Tell us about uh, why the eyes are, I guess, uh, windows to your soul. Look, it's a, it's a mystery to me. It comes up subconsciously. like they, they just keep coming up for me. And sometimes I can focus on them quite clearly, as in this series um, titled The Untimely. And there are, I think there are about 10 paintings in this series. These ones look particularly beaky birdish, but it's very much about the gaze, the eye, that intense kind of... This is like a bird of prey almost, like this... You know, and that's a, again, I think it's about the father's gaze, the gaze of the father. And as children, you know, you sort of, de- you sort of devise strategies, but, you know, you sort of try to avoid this the threatening gaze. If you can stay out of this person's gaze, you know, you have a greater um, opportunity <laughs> of remaining um, unharmed, you know. So the Untimely series very much is about the gaze of the father. And uh, these two do look like beaky birds, and I guess you could read them as birds of prey, if you like. In the middle of your uh, exhibition, there is uh, a piece that's not yours. In fact, uh, from a very famous Dutch artist. Norwegian, Norwegian sorry. <laughs> um, Edvard Munch. And it's a work, when I was at art school at VCA 30 years ago, 1982 to 84, the art school was at the back of the NGV and we had very good access to the gallery and the collections and I was always impressed by Munch and accessed the prints. And this very famous print, Towards the Forest, he is using this jigsaw puzzle technique here. Iconographically, the thing about this image is the dribbly um, way the sky meets the top of the trees. And this large um, screen print of mine here called To the Forest, the Monk work is titled Towards the Forest, and I've taken you know, my inspiration from this, this dribbling, forming form at the top of this work into my work, which looks like sort of snow-covered conifer tree, if you like. It does um, a little. But there's also um, something very interesting in the fluidity of the figures and yeah. the play on the positive and negative within the two figures in the foreground. Yes, um, that is also an element that comes into my work. Mm. The, I really love the embrace, the tenderness of the embrace in this work. And this kind of shape, the positive-negative shape, plays into the large painting, um, the large black-and-white painting here called Swamp Number no. 2. Which is the one that is featured on the uh, front of the gallery as you enter from St Kilda Road. That's right. There's a black shape in the centre of this painting, so the white figure bending over, but there's a, an isolated, floating dark shape which then becomes a positive form. And I, for me, this refers back to, not really refers back to the monk, but it sits in a very similar place um, to the way that sits on that surface. Now, this swamp figure is part of a huge series of yours, both uh, paintings and prints. Um, there are 17 or 18 large paintings in this series and a set of two screen prints, large screen prints, and this set of seven aquatints here. And it's pretty much about the body and the forming of the body through the fluid or through, you know, through, yeah, through the fluid. They're very swampy, if you like. They're very also very sexual, I have to say. <laughs> I don't... Yeah, I don't you don't it. see it, do you? No, I don't... I, yeah. I, it, for me, it was very much about the body forming. I mean, 
there are appendages, rather large appendages in the works, some of them. But um, yeah, no, it's rather about the forming of the feet, the forming, the body forming out of fluid, if you like. And uh, how many of these pieces are owned uh, by the gallery? Well, they own the they own this set of seven aquatins and the two screen prints have been gifted um, to the gallery. And um, the large painting which they purchased in 1999. That's the one that, as we said, features on the front wall of the gallery as you walk in. Now, as we come to the uh, conclusion of your uh, exhibition, we've done the full rounds. There is a very large green painting with what you describe as a womb. <laughs> I've never thought of that until I've seen the painting hanging here. It's from 1996 and it's from a series called On Becoming and I was very much engaged in reading um, French theorist called um, Gilles Deleuze and one of his titles, one of his essays or segments in this um, large work of his called A Thousand Plateaus is called On Becoming and it's just, I guess it's just the becoming of form, my reading of it. This is kind of like the ground zero of becoming form. So it's just large floating cream lozenge, I suppose, on a green field. And I hadn't actually thought of it as being a womb until sort of standing in front of it here. Um, but it could be. But it's kind of like it is as reduced as I could take it back to. And then the series starts to form from here. It then moves into sort of strangely more figurative and head-like sort of shapes. Now, as we've been walking around today, we've watched and amused by some uh, number of people that have come up to, to this particular painting and just stared at it and disgusted at length. And, and you're, you seem somewhat bemused by that. Well, it's pretty... It's a kind of a dull painting. Like, it's not dull because it's very colourful, but what is there? There's, a there's not a lot to it, is no, there? No, there's not a lot to it. Yeah. But it does seem to interest people. I don't... I, I think it's optically kind of curious, and you had quite a good description. Uh, of look, I find that it, it pulses um, it, because it's so flat in its texture. Uh, the gr brightness of the green and the cream seems to sort of pulse in and out. I don't know what it is, but every time I look at it, it's moving. So maybe that's what other people are seeing in it, but you certainly don't. No, <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I, I, it, for me, it's more of an intellectual um, play on on becoming, I suppose. The curator of Brent Harris's exhibition is Jane Devery and she joins us now. Jane, congratulations on an amazing expose of Brent's work. It's just beautiful. What goes into putting something like this together? Um, firstly, thanks very much. It's been a real joy to work on this one. Um, working closely with Brent has been really enriching and... Um, yeah, it's been a lot of hard work, but it's all been um, fantastic. Um, yes, yeah, so really one of the interesting things about this exhibition is that it's drawn almost entirely from the NGV's holdings. So Brent's one of those artists that we've been um, collecting in depth from pretty, pretty early on in his career. So the, I think the earliest work in this exhibition dates from 1987, and we've got things that are straight out of the studio. So it really covers about 25 years, so it's interesting in that way. How does the gallery earmark an artist like Brent to, to follow over their career and to really get in at that early stage? Because you did, in 87, he was uh, a virtual nobody to become one of Australia's finest. How do you know when you're onto something good? Well, that's the challenge, obviously, <laughs> for any um, curator of contemporary art. And I think this, this um, exhibition and our holdings of Brent's work um, is really 
testament to the visions of previous curators who've worked here. So quite, you know, quite a number of curators have helped build up this collection. Um, but it is, I mean, we look for artists who show promise at a young age in their career and um, at a young point in their career. And Brent enjoyed early success. So, you know, within a few years of um, graduating from the VCA in Melbourne, he was um, really um, attracting a lot of critical attention. So um, I guess we were noticing him at that point and continued to follow him as he kind of rose in prominence. Contemporary art tends to get a bit of a bad rap quite often and, and for many it's very difficult to see how one could invest in, in imagery that is not a clear narrative. How is it that uh, you can find such beautiful pieces like these? I mean, having Brent walk me through some of them today has been a huge eye-opener for me personally, but um, you, you must have to um, fight off this sort of criticism all the time. Yeah, it's certainly one of the challenges of being a curator of, in contemporary art. Um, yeah, we, we, I find that as a, a personally a really interesting challenge to be able to present material that um, at first glance might not be um, easily understood or, you know, a lot of people have a lot of fear about contemporary art, but um, I think it's one of the roles, particularly in institutions like the NGBs, to try and break down um, those kind of fears that people might have and... Um, to educate us uh, Philistines. <laughs> I'm not saying that. <laughs> um, but to make it accessible because um, it's there for everyone's enjoyment and, you know, we all own this work too. It's a state collection, so... Um, yeah, and I think Brent's work is very beautiful. I mean, some of the subjects are quite difficult, um, but... They do draw you in, um, particularly the new works are incredibly vibrant and colourful and seductive, but equally, you know, the earlier, at every stage in his career, his works have been characterised by quite a strong um, aesthetic and this really seductive quality, I think. So I think most people will allow themselves to be drawn into that, and well, I'd hope so anyway. He's very prolific. How do you, how do you pick and choose which ones that uh, you want featured within... Uh your gallery walls? Well, that was difficult um, because we do have more works than are in the exhibition. Um, and he is, you're right, he's a prolific artist who works in large series of works. Um, one of the things I wanted to tease out in this exhibition was um, the quite complicated relationship that he has, his drawings and his printmaking practices have in relation to his paintings. So I was looking at a balance of works, so that was one way of kind of narrowing down the list but you know obviously looking at um, key works from different series was another way just to get an address kind of a balance of um, the main modes that he's worked through I suppose. Now you've put together a wonderful little book that accompanies this exhibition congratulations on that because uh, it really does help uh, the viewer get a greater depth and understanding of, of Brent's work. It forms part of a much larger exhibition of contemporary works for the National Gallery of Victoria. Can you tell us a bit about that bigger picture that's going through this year? Um, yeah, so this is um, one of a number of um, contemporary art exhibitions that we'll mount this year. Um, we, coming up later in the year, will be uh, mounting an exhibition of contemporary art, again from the collection, entirely from the collection, um, all works that have been acquired through a particular fund, which is called the Victorian Foundation for Living Australian Artists, and um, that's, that's kind of one of the next ones on the horizon. This uh, is also free to come and see, which is lovely. We try to make it as accessible as possible. And that's partly because it's our works, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what are some of the highlights of this exhibition that you're particularly proud to, uh, to have the gallery own and exhibit on this round? 
Well, I think everything in here has got its own richness, but I'm particularly excited by the new paintings. There's three small new paintings that you see as you enter the exhibition space, and they represent this quite dramatic shift in Brent's painting style that occurred over the past few years. Um, they're quite um, yeah, beguiling little works that are... They're my favourites too. Are they? Yeah, yeah I'm not surprised. Um, but there's also, I was very pleased to be able to include three very, very recent um, monotypes that are kind of straight off the press, so to speak, um, in Brent's studio. And they kind of have evolved out of the recent paintings and um, it's just wonderful. We've actually got them hanging next to um, the earliest works in the exhibition so you can see really these dramatic shifts that have occurred over um, a couple of decades. Jane Devery, congratulations on curating an amazing uh, exhibition of Brent Harris's work and uh, thank you very much for joining us on Word for Word. Thank you very much. Brent Harris, it's been an absolute delight to meet you today and it's been great to get a deeper understanding of your work and how your work has progressed and um, it's, it's deeply personal, clearly. Some of it's psychological. Yes, yeah, I think intellectual, psychological and personal. Quite often works are generated by st from strong emotion and then you sort of come out the other end of that and I think the most recent work now is probably more universal rather than personal. You know, the subject of the fall and the absurdity of the human condition is more universal than just my situation. So it kind of moves around. It's very curious in an exhibition like this that I as the artist or any artist gets to see the like the past or their t the time laid out you know in this curious way and whether it stacks up or doesn't stack up. You hold your own here very very well on the walls of the National Gallery yeah. Victoria. It is a great opportunity and it's been great working with Jane Devery she's really she's done a great job at installing this I think and it's really informative for an artist to be able to look back over the work so I'd be curious to see what happens next. Congratulations on this exhibition. It's going through to uh, 12th of August and uh, it's on at the Robert Rayner Gallery here at the National Gallery of Victoria in St Kilda Road. Now Brent Harris, where can we find out more information about your works other than coming here to the gallery? Um, well my two galleries I show in Melbourne at Tolano Galleries, um, Sydney at Martin Brown Contemporary and in Perth at Lister Gallery. They all have websites that contain my work but I'm just started putting together my own website so it actually I'm going to work backwards so I've put up the two most recent exhibitions and I've also put up the grotesquery series so there are 26 paintings so they're all imaged on the website now which would be hopefully interesting for people and then s slowly as I add to that I'll, um, I'll start introducing text and other other information and it's I think it's just brentharris.com.au I'm not sure we'll check on that okay <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. There'll be a podcast and a transcript of this interview available for download from Joy's website, joy.org.au. If you'd like to correspond with the program, please do so. Simply send an email, wordforword at joy.org.au. I'm Dean Beck. You can follow me on Twitter at Dean Beck on air. Till next time, you keep well. Take care and bye for now. Word for Word is produced by Robert Briley and presented by Dean Beck from Australia's first gay and lesbian radio station, Melbourne's Joy 94.9. Word for Word is made possible thanks to funding provided by the Community Broadcasting Foundation and is distributed nationally to over 70 radio stations in the Community Radio Network.
Joy 94.9 is a GLB TIQ community radio station in Melbourne, Australia. Support Joy 94.9 by becoming a member at joy.org.au. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.